from Kurtco Media. This is Cars That Matter. Hello, my fellow car fans. Welcome to Cars That Matter. You know, back when we ran Rob Report, we spent our lives searching the world for the very best of the best of everything. And it turns out the finest in style, design, quality always start with special people. Now, one of the most special connoisseurs of automotive art and design was the car guy at Rob Report. Welcome our host for Cars That Matter, Mr. Robert Ross. Welcome, Robert. Well, Bill, thank you for that encomium. Hardly deserving, but uh, hugely appreciated. I really do appreciate that. We had an awful lot of fun with Rob Report, and the most uh, fun about it, I think, was meeting some of the great people over the course of those years. One of them, of course, is my guest today, David Gooding. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Obviously, David needs little introduction among car aficionados around the world, but to uh, make a little more formal introduction... Gooding and Company has built a reputation as the world's leading automotive auction house, making a name for consistently offering, well, what I'd like to say, cars that matter. Founder and President David Gooding started his Santa Monica-based firm in 2003, and since then, he's achieved an impressive roster of top sales, setting a number of model-specific records for prices realized, and uh, making a lot of friends along the way. I had a chance to meet with David and his team at uh, Gooding & Company up in Monterey this August, where uh, they uh, acted as the official auction house once again for, I think, what is really the world's most prestigious uh, car show, the Pebble Beach Concours d'Elegance. August 2019 was another one of those hair-raising Monterey Car Weeks, wasn't it, David? Yeah. You know, one of the great things about the auction business is even for those of us fully immersed in it for all these years, we never know what's going to happen. And that's part of the excitement of it. It's the market speaking. So when those cars roll up on the ramp and they exceed their estimate or they fall short, it happens there in front of a worldwide audience. It's always fun to see the market speak and to get that feedback in real time. Well, and and to see uh, history being made in real time, too. And it sounds like this year you actually made a little bit of history because you established the weekend's highest sales, more than $76 million worth. I could uh, joke and say it's not bad for a weekend's work, but I know there's about a year of planning behind all that, isn't there? (laughs) There is, yeah. We're working constantly on it. We're already working on next year's sales, and (laughs) it's never-ending. What have you uh, done for me lately? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I mean, it's literally you wake up the next day and have to start all over again. And I'm already planning trips to go look at cars that might be for sale or convince these clients that are thinking of selling a car that uh, we'd love to have. Let's take a breath and enjoy the fruits of this last week's sales. Certainly there were some highlights in Monterey. Yeah. And you set some, uh, you set some pretty fine cars up on stage. Yeah. So our, our top selling lot was a 1958 Ferrari California Spider. And we... That was nearly a $10 million car. Yeah. Yeah, and there were a couple California Spiders for sale on the weekend. Ours was the only one that sold. Beautiful car. I mean, just absolutely stunning. It had a first-class restoration by Motion Products. and Wayne. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it was Ferrari Classic A certified, finished in a gorgeous period color scheme of gray, which you don't usually see on those cars. And we have a great video on our website of that car. That was a 
That was a fun day, making the video and driving the car around a lot. Fantastic car. Certainly one of the blue-chip icons of uh, the Ferrari stable. Definitely. I mean, it it always has been. We've probably sold more, well, we have sold more California Spiders than anyone. They just embody everything great about a 250 Ferrari. They're sensational-looking. They sound great. They're fun to drive, open-air motoring, V12. Can you tell our listeners what's the difference, just in a nutshell, an elevator explanation of the difference between a short wheelbase and a long wheelbase? Well, the long wheelbase cars came first. They were uh, late 57 through 61, 62, I believe. The Ferrari Anoraks will probably tell me exactly (laughs) what what month and everything else, but uh, somewhere, you know, basically, yeah, 58 to uh, 60, 61. The short wheelbase cars were a few inches shorter. They theoretically handle better and are a little bit lighter and everything else, and therefore they are worth more in in the market. But a lot of us like actually the long wheelbase cars. Boy, they look. They're up. they're just so pretty. The yeah. the length of, yeah. of that chassis length, the design fits so covered well. headlights. Yeah, the headlights are either uh, covered headlights or open headlight, and the. The delta, the price difference for covered headlight cars is huge. It used to be just a million dollars. Now I think it's multi-millions. Beyond that, it becomes there are so much fewer buyers for open headlight cars than covered headlight cars. It's it's not a matter of price. It's just some people won't buy an open headlight car. You get people who try to change the personality of their car and and put a closed headlight well, on an open his... headlight car? Yeah, definitely. We, we, we had a f- car uh, it, at our Pebble Beach sale in 2009, which I think was converted from open headlight to covered headlight. And the converted car is worth basically what it would have been worth as an open headlight car. So at the time, it was probably a million dollars less. I think nowadays it'd be a lot less. And of course, now it'll cost the guy at least a half million to convert it back to the way it should have been in the first place. Yeah, 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 exactly. (laughs) But I I imagine you can't bring a car like that to Pebble. Not on the lawn at Pebble Beach. It would not be accepted, probably. So. But but it's it's all purely aesthetic. I mean, it's just it's just that the covered headlights are prettier. From a functionality point of view, I think actually the open headlight cars, people said that if you're driving them at speed at night, the open headlight cars, the light is projected clearer and they're they're superior. Uh, So the racers like the open headlight cars better purely from, you know, if they're driving at night for competition. But to look at, there's no question about it. The covered headlight cars are are what's most beautiful. That was then and this is now. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. exactly. So when you looked at that car and you knew you were auctioning that car at yes. this at this event. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you have an immediate thought in your mind on what its value should be and who should buy it? <laughs> yes, we all. Well, yeah, I I always and and my team we always look at the cars and we we have we come up with a, a list of people that we think would be interested in them and then we also a- absolutely come up with pricing. And our estimate on the car was 11 to 13. It sold for uh, under that price. 9.9? 9.9, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the market speaking. It, yeah. didn't, it didn't speak terribly loudly. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's still a pretty good yeah, price. It was, it's still a lot of money for had our car. Had that car sold previously? Yes, that car had sold previously in the nines not too long ago. Yeah. No, so someone just bought it and turned it right around? Well, they they bought it and then they, they put a bunch of money in restoring it. Emotion so. products restoration is not for the faint of heart. No, and that's uh, no. There were receipts uh, inches thick, like a, an old New York yellow pages. Yep, 
Yep, okay. exactly. Yeah, but beautifully done. Yeah. I mean, just gorgeous. Gorgeous. Yeah. Well, that's that's the way you want them. If it's not uh, absolutely original, you want them perfectly restored. That's right. Yeah. That was a great sale. Yeah. And you had some other Ferraris, too. Obviously, there was a Series 1 cab that uh, did not do too shabbily. I believe that's a record for a Series 1 Cabriolet. Uh, we sold it for 6.8. And that is a real interesting kind of comparison. That is a good bit less than the, the California, but it's basically the same car different coach builder. One is the California Scaglietti. The Series 1 is Pininfarina. There are a lot of people that prefer the Pininfarina-bodied cars. When they were new, they were a lot more expensive. That's they a were pretty cool. Thousands of, you know, I think a, a Series 1 was $12,000. Yeah. Okay, there we yeah. go. And then the California was 9 or something. So uh, they were a lot more expensive. Higher build quality, uh, they are stunning. It is interesting how Time has made the California the more valuable car. It's got a name that is easier to digest and explain for a lot of people. You know, you say California Spider. You know, you can say that and they know what if you say Series 1 Pininfarina Cabriolet. A lot of people was kind of little more of a, a little more of a tongue twister. Yeah, yeah. But nothing, the, the cars are sensational. Yeah. The PF so, Cab. David, can you yeah. tell us a little about your, your process with like mm-hmm. a Series 1 where... You're going to photograph it. You're going yep. to possibly develop a video. You obviously look at its heritage and previous sales, and I guess you look into its restoration quite a bit. T- tell us a little about your step-by-step process. It's not so easy no. to take a car, put it on a stage, and, and have someone walk away having spent $6 million plus. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's, it's not easy, which is fine. That's okay. Otherwise, uh, everybody, would, everybody, be doing everybody would be doing it. Looking at that Series 1, that's a great example. We've been chasing that car for years. I've known of that car since the 90s when a previous owner had it. The fellow that consigned it to us got it, I think, in about 1997. And I've literally been following that car since then. He did not want to sell, did not want to sell, did not want to sell. Finally, he purchased another car from us that he'd been just dying to have. And for various reasons, there was... Something that had to go in the collection, and I kind of <laughs> ran out of parking spots <laughs> in, the, parking in the, spots the garage. And, yeah, we were debating between a few cars, and I knew that that series one was really special. There are only a few that have the side vents and the bumperettes, which are, it's the ultimate derivation of the series one of the thirty-six or thirty-nine cars that were built. Only about four or five have what is considered the prettiest combination of all these features. And this is one of those cars. And so I was really pushing him because I knew that we could really accentuate that and sell that to to some of our clients. And he agreed. And uh, then the photography comes into play. We had the car shipped out here. We photographed it in Malibu. I, I love the photo shoot that we have of that car. Uh, it's That's a, at the Rock? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Hard yeah. to beat. Then we, we go through cataloging it, and uh, there's another thing. As we were researching, we knew a fair amount about the car and its history and its originality. What we didn't know, which was fun and interesting, was the original owner, this Italian prince, and I don't remember his name off the top of my head, but he was the inspiration for the movie La Dolce Vita. And he was a quite a character. I mean, this was a guy that led an interesting, full life. A lot of Ferrari owners have. Yeah, he was he was at the top of the chain. I mean, lots of it was La Dolce Vita. Sure, I mean, definitely. Sure, you know, wine, women, and all the good stuff. Wine, women, and fast cars, and that was his thing. You know, we we really enjoy the research 
and delving into the history of these cars. And we're quite proud of the writing that we do. And if you read the catalog description of that car, it's a mini novella. That's a lot of work you put into that, which is really what makes the value of a car these days. It's as much about the story as it is about the metal sometimes. Definitely. These are parts of history, parts of human history. And so when you're looking at that car, the car itself is beautiful. But then when you look into it further and realize the people that were involved with it, it just becomes that much more interesting and enjoyable and valuable, perhaps monetarily valuable, of course. But how do you put a price on that? Absolutely. The Mona Lisa is a whole lot more interesting because Napoleon hung it in his bedroom for four years than it uh, would be without that ownership history. So I think uh, cars are the same. In a lot of ways, cars are absolutely the same. This show is called Cars That Matter. Does Gooding know where every one of them is? (laughs) Uh, In an ideal world, yes. We know where most of them are, but occasionally, sure, we get surprised. That's part of the fun. I mean... Life without a barn find wouldn't be much of a life at all. Yeah, exactly. You've um, dusted a few old girls off lately. That Raspberry Gullwing was yeah. phenomenal. Yeah. Well, that was a car. Yes, that's a sensational, original Gullwing. It's a great fun is getting these phone calls and searching for these cars. I mean, we had a 540K and we found it in Germany through some other friends of ours in the art end of the auction business. Mm-hmm. They had said, oh, we're looking at these paintings and we came across this 540K. Would you be interested Absolutely. So flew over to Germany and consigned the car and it came to Pebble Beach and we sold it. What percentage of the cars that you end up auctioning did you have to convince the seller to sell yeah. as opposed to come to you because it's time? I would guess that 20% are were convincing. You know, most people want to sell. You can't get them from absolutely not to yes. There has to be a kernel of wanting to turn it into... No means no, David. (laughs) (laughs) We know that in this era, right? (laughs) Exactly. So what's the strategy? You go to their friends and you get their friends to walk into someone's museum and say, you know, Phil, this is just a great collection, but you really got to get rid of the Duesenberg. Somebody has to want to sell, definitely. But I always try to find, you know, like if they're thinking about selling it for some reason, what is that reason? If, If they want to sell, perhaps there's something else they want to buy, or if it's just because they absolutely need the money because of taxes or some urgent matter. That's one reason. If it's, well, I want to sell to get something else. I'm not totally in the mood to sell, but if I found this certain special something, there's my opening. Have you had to create a daisy chain a little bit where someone says, I'm looking for, yeah, uh, I'm looking for this. You find me that, I'll give you this car. Definitely. Definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. Sounds exhausting. David, not to to go too far down a rabbit hole, but has the uh, 1031 exchange put a little bit of a damper on some of this upgrading? Uh, Initially, when 1031s ended, we thought we'd see a sharp drop off in the market. We didn't immediately. We thought once that they, once 1031s ended last year, that it would just, you know, have an immediate effect. It didn't. Nothing fell off a cliff. People are still buying more expensive cars. Yeah. The amazing thing about this industry, hobby, whatever you want to call it, is that people are very passionate about these cars and markets go up and down and there are roadblocks. You have to pay this kind of tax on a car to own it and bring it into this sort of, to whatever country you live in. People find ways to get around. <laughs> yes, they do. They, lo- they love these cars. Where there's a will, there's a way. There's, there, and there's tremendous desire and will around these cars. So people were collecting cars very actively before 1031s existed. 1031s fueled a lot of sales, 
but it was very active before and it's been very active after. People are still so excited and passionate about the cars that they're going to find a way to, to collect them no matter what. Bill and I dove deep into David's most recent auction at the time of the recording. But I wanted to spend a little time discussing one item that really piqued my interest. Ferrari's Formula One race car from the 70s, a very special 312T. We knew that that was a special car and that it could redefine the market. And you ask, how do we price something like that? I mean, it's... it's you, No you, comps. Yeah, there's no comps. I mean, we look at other Formula One cars from the, the period, and they're going to be below value of what a Ferrari is, and, and then you just sort of extrapolate up and... And then you realize who drove it, so it, it's an additive process. Yeah. But so, then, so what were your expectations on that car, and how, did, how we, did she do? We said six to eight on it, and it sold for... Robert, do you have the results It there? sold for uh, six million. There you go. And, Six million dollars. Uh, so. You know, for a for a wild guess, that's, that's a, a hell of that's a guess. A pretty good. That's a pretty good guess. Congratulations <laughs> on that one. Yep. Shining a spotlight on what could be a new venue of collectibles. Let's uh, take a break and uh, come back and talk about more cars, and uh, maybe even take a look at the future of cars. We'll be right back. I was introduced to Stefano Ricci decades ago, and I was enamored of his creations then, and just as impressed now, Stefano Ricci is about style that matters because it lasts. The design, the craftsmanship, uh, everything about everything he does is uh, made to endure. So we're back with our host, Robert Ross, and David Gooding. And David, I'd like to go back a little ways Mm -hmm. to where your passion came from. At -hmm. what point could you look at a car and say... You know, that's something I'd like to put on a stage with the right lights and the right prep and actually auction off to a crowd of sophisticated buyers. Well, How did that happen? Well, so I grew up in the classic car industry. My father was a, a museum curator, so he, he was the uh, curator of the Hera Collection, worked at the Nethercutt Automotive Museum, the Crawford Museum in, in Cleveland, Ohio. My father was very into the brass era cars, so I would say performance cars from anything from 1900 to 1915, but pretty much anything pre-World War II. But he always liked powerful cars. So uh, I grew up around those exposed to things like Thomas Flyers and Mercer Raceabouts and and, and big uh, simplex, chain drive simplexes and things like that, which are, for those people that aren't familiar with them, they're at first blush, they'll look at them and go, those are cute sort of cars, but they don't they're realize... They're monsters. They're monsters, and they're they're exciting. They're really exciting to ride in or drive. I mean, a chain-drive wooden-wheel car that'll do 90 miles an hour. <laughs> That's a thrill ride. That's, that is that is uh, with no windshield yeah. and no doors, and you're holding on for dear life. Good That's, pair of goggles. Yeah, good pair of goggles, if you're lucky. <laughs> That's, I don't think my father believed in goggles. <laughs> but but uh, uh, literally, while he was working... As a curator in the museum working late nights, I was left, it was night at the museum, so I was left in the museum after it was closed at these different museums to wander around the car collections. And It's every kid's dream. Yeah, well, not every, you know, I mean, some kids were more interested in playing video games or sports or whatnot, but I was was, uh, at these museums. After a few weeks of walking around the collections, you kind of get to know you lift the hoods, you sit in the cars, you you know, you look under them. There's only so much you can see. Then I would spend a lot more time in the libraries because the libraries are, you could spend just 
endless hours in. And that's where I would actually spend more time is, is getting to know a lot about the cars in the, through the library. Uh, so this is a real passion. It, I definitely am, have the disease. And uh, my family will say, you know, look, you do this every day and then you come home at night and you're still reading about cars. I'll go, oh, yeah, but that's different. These are my work cars. And then this is, this is the fun stuff I that's want to read. That's you know? fantastic. <laughs> well, you've got some fun stuff. I, I know you've got a few dinosaurs in your stable. Yeah, we have a 14 Silver Ghost. Uh, we have a 27 Bentley. And then we have some newer cars, some uh, sports cars from the 50s and 60s. And I, I mean, I, I love everything. I, <laughs> I could have a very big collection if, if permitted, if, uh, <laughs> if my budget permitted. But, well, uh, it sounds like you've got a very refined and specialized one, actually. And uh, going all the way back to Mercer, is that right? Yeah, that's the oldest car, 13 that's Mercer Race Fantastic. Uh, which is the car I learned to drive on. Wonderful car. Uh, I was 13 when I learned to drive this car. Well, that's not an easy car to drive. Surprisingly, it is actually not hard. It's actually <laughs> not that hard. It's, it's got a standard four-speed gearbox that is very forgiving. The steering is very easy, and everything is absolutely out where you would expect it. The, the only thing that's sort of unconventional is the brake is a handbrake. You have a foot brake, but the real brake you use is a, is a handbrake, so you sort of toggle between shifting and Breaking, but once you get used to that, it's uh, so you're never going to sell that car. That that is part of your personality. That is, yeah, that is ingrained. Yeah, part of part of the family. How did World War One affect that car? Its manufacture? Yeah, very good question. So World War One put a huge dent in a lot of the automotive manufacturers. Mercer, they were out of Trent, New Jersey, and they got through World War One. But then they had to uh, reorganize, and the family that owned them sold out, and they were taken over by a conglomerate, which then eventually ran the company into the ground. As so many do. Yeah. But they made it longer than a lot of their contemporaries, Simplex and, and Thomas Flyer and Pope Hartford and mm-hmm. Pope Tribune. They, they, all, they all went to bust. There was a uh, dramatic recession, then the war. So there were, there were lots of issues. And then, of course, uh, these companies were building very, very, very high-end, expensive automobiles that were becoming obsolete in a few years. And testament to Mercer's vision is that it remains probably one of the most desirable pre-war collectibles. Did you restore that car? Uh, only mechanically, but not cosmetically. We're just going through and redoing, uh, you know, remachining some pieces that have been worn down and things like that. But uh, cosmetically, it, it looks no different. It looks, it's basically looks and is like it was in uh, the 1920s. Respecting so. and uh, appreciating the actual patina and age and authenticity of the car. Yeah. Yeah. That's... Well, I, I love cars with patina uh, with, uh, to me, they're the cars that are so much more memorable. I mean, a, a beautifully restored car is sensational, definitely, and it's a work of art, and the restoration in and of itself is is beautiful to look at and, and can can really draw you in. But the cars I find that I remember most are cars that have some battle scars, cars that have yeah. texture. Yeah. You know, they just, they they stick with you more. And uh, I think it's true in a lot of collectibles. Do you have other addictions? Uh, not really. I mean, a little bit of art, but nothing nothing significant. It's really everything is more 
car orientated. <laughs> well, I'd like to uh, kind of really start asking the hard-hitting questions, David, and uh, look into the David Gooding crystal ball if we can. Oh, and, oh uh, okay. Yeah, <laughs> but I think yours is probably a little more transparent than mine. Everybody's talking about the collector car market, and we're seeing, you know, trends and tastes and things change. In what ways do you think the collector car market and the customer are changing. We don't see a slow up of the car collecting at all. In fact, it's just the opposite. It's it's growing dramatically. And there is more of an affinity and an attraction for some older cars that are drastically different from the newer cars that are being produced. Basically, our clientele, everybody that we dealt with uh, 20 years ago, if they're still around, they're most often Uh, active in collecting cars. Um, And in addition to them, there's a whole new cadre of collectors who are active and coming into the industry. How do I see it uh, changing? I mean, we're certainly selling more modern cars than we used to, uh, much more modern cars than we used to, and different brands than we used to. We used to sell a lot of Packards. We're selling fewer Packards than we used to. We we used to not sell any Toyotas. We sell now. Now we sell. Who'd have thunk? Yeah, yeah. Man and, alive. Uh, Japanese yeah. uh, domestic market cars yeah, all yeah. of a sudden, and American market Japanese cars all of a sudden. There's a following. Yeah, exactly. And there's a huge following and a, and, a, and an active following. So we sell a heck of a lot more Porsches than we used to, and all of this is is wonderful and great. But also that trend just means that some of the things that uh, uh, we're selling fewer of are not doing as well. I mean, we're we're getting bigger prices for Packards than we used to. We're getting bigger prices for Duesenbergs than we ever did before. We may be selling fewer, but we're selling higher quality examples for more money. Would you say the market is sort of splitting off or bifurcating to become one of, uh, you know, where A-level 6, 7, and heaven help us, even 8-figure cars are, <laughs> are sort of on one side of the fence and then there's everything else? Definitely in the car market, but I, I think that's also true in many segments of the art market. And when I speak to colleagues that are in those industries, they definitely, they're experiencing the same thing. So, yeah. And some people sort of lament that bifurcation. I think it's okay because if you want the very best of the best of the best, you're going to have to reach extra far. But it also means for the people that aren't able to reach, you know, maybe they can be happy with uh, Mm -hmm. a car that doesn't have its original body or doesn't have its original engine. It, It can be worth a lot less, but it also becomes available and open to somebody without as big a budget, which is which is nice. You know, you look at the catalogs today from not only your own auction house, but some of the others, and you see that it, uh, really the price of admission in the uh, collector car hobby starts at about $200,000, $250,000. That's a lot of discretionary income. Yeah. So it's nice to know that there are at least some places to sort of play in the sandbox that uh, may not be quite that dear. That's right. There's a lot of opportunity in, in every price point, and you just have to be open-minded about it and flexible and figure out what's important to you. If you've ever been a bidder at an auction, then you know how quickly you can get carried away in the heat of the moment. Not only do you want that car, but this might be the only chance you'll ever get to own it. And believe it or not, going over budget isn't always a bad thing. When when does it pay to overpay? <laughs> Is there a time that that's okay? Definitely. There's, you know, look... People are going to think this is a self-serving thing that you say, you know, you can never pay too much. And here I am as an auctioneer saying that. But from an investment point of view, and I don't usually advise people 
I don't like to advise people from an investment point of view, but a few years ago, I think it was after one of our Pebble Beach sales, I, I, I had some time and I was just organizing my old catalogs from the last, all of our Gooding Company catalogs. And then, you know, I worked at Christie's for 11 years and I was going through it. I was organizing them all on the shelf. And so naturally I pull them out as they got out of order and everything and I'm putting them back in order and I'm flipping through the, the catalogs and looking, okay, that th those 300 SLs sold for that and that sold for that and that sold for that. Oh, look, that, you know, gosh, that alpha, that was a world record price at a, that 2.38C alpha was, you know, blew everybody's <laughs> mind. It sold for how much? One and how a half much? million dollars. Oh, my gosh. Blew in 1995. I'll take 10. Yeah, exactly. Bl blew everybody's mind. And then here again, this Ferrari that was a California Spider that sold for a world record price of $800,000. No kidding. Yeah. Wow. Uh, and so, again and again and again, the cars that sold for world record money or the cars that certainly had gone up most in value. Am I saying that if you pay a world record price for a car, does it mean that it's going to go up the most? No. But if you stretch for the very best, that is probably the car that's going to appreciate uh, in the future and also be sought after and recognized as the best of the best when it comes up again. Well, with that, with that in mind, then, I mean, are, are there some cars then that have always been desirable and from the beginning and will then continue, in your estimation, to be desirable going into the future? Cars that are definitely have been the best of their category. I think there are always these stars in whatever segment of the world they occupy. And, I, you know, I think of a McLaren F1 as a great example of that. They were clearly the top of the food chain of that era. And they are so much more valuable and sought after than any of their contemporaries. And they always have been, and I think they always will be. They are clearly, there's nothing that touches them as far as desirability, uh, advancement, beauty. I mean, they are in a class of themselves. So yeah. just, just for a second, this is just between us. Nobody else can hear us right now. <laughs> um, we need a couple of secrets. There's some marks that for whatever reason... Yeah are not bringing the kind of money in the past that they're worth. And you know which cars those are. And if I were developing a collection, the secret would be David Gooding knows that this mark is going to go on fire sometime <laughs> soon. Well, you know, I, I, think, I think in general that a lot of the, uh, I think a lot of the British marks are still undervalued. I, I, I think... You know, Jaguars represent a tremendous amount of uh, value for the money, and E-types are a great example. They've gone up a lot recently. I think in most recent times, there's been a little pushback, and so it's a good opportunity to buy these gorgeous cars that are fun to use, great looking. You're talking about an early uh, Series uh, 1, yep. uh, maybe uh, even a flat floor or yep. something? In any form of a Series 1, I okay. think, are great cars. A 140? Oh, 140 yeah, is a that, great that's car. a great car. That's great, a beautiful great car. car. And that's still very affordable. Extremely affordable. So that's I mean, a deal. For nothing. So that's a great example. They seem, you can they buy seem that like for nothing. nothing. And look, there's nothing prettier than the, fixed head. No, I know. I love them. I love them. And Baby Bugatti. Yeah, yeah. Exa exactly. Yeah. So exactly. you can actually look like a like a like an automotive collector by putting one of those on your floor, yeah. and you're not spending that much money. You're spending. You can you can buy a nice one for a hundred thousand dollars. Heelys are are selling for almost that amount of money. Mm -hmm. Or more, and yeah. and yet you have a you know full blown 
grown-up uh, sports car, and they're gorgeous and wonderful and great to drive and use. And so, uh, no, that, I think and that that turns heads on a Sunday when you're driving it past the beach. Definitely, they're wonderful cars. Maseratis still represent great value. Uh, it was yeah. a lot of car. A lot. That's a lot of eyeball for the money. Tremendous. I love Maseratis. I kind of go by country. I mean, Amer- there are so many great American cars that are that are great value. Cars from the 50s and 60s. I mean, the value is tremendous for what you can get. A lot of people focus on um, where cars are relative to where they've been price-wise. And, you know, you know Porsche is a great example. They'll look at Porsche and go, oh, my God, you know, I've missed the boat. It's gone. They've gone up too much. Therefore, I can't dip my toe in the water. Uh, I disagree with that. I think there's still a lot of value there. Touch on Lamborghini a little bit. Mm-hmm. Are, there, are, there some, are there some deals out there? Yeah, there's definitely deals in Lamborghini. Um, there's been a great appreciation. And it's it's interesting how, you know, Ferrari obviously is leading the charge, but then Lamborghini has followed. I remember when the first Mira sold for a million dollars, I congratulated then-President Stefan Winkleman. I said, well, you finally have a million-dollar car, don't you? I love Miras. I mean, I, I think they're sensational-looking, sensational-sounding. They're, they're gorgeous cars. So I, I would be a, a Mira man over a Countach, but, of course, they're more money. So, <laughs> You think there's some upside for the Countach, though, definitely. David? Especially the yeah. first, first uh, series yeah, Countach. Yeah, and and ghost, yeah definitely. As long as you don't have some to of put it in reverse, ones? right, Remember? Yeah. <laughs> well, that or maybe drive it, period. But, boy, they sure were. Uh, they were an iconic car in terms of, uh, you know, inspiring a whole generation of kids. Definitely. I do think there's a definite appreciation there. Market a bright future for those cars. If you go to the 350s or the 400s and and the Miras, that market is doing extremely well. They're outperforming areas that surprises a lot of people. They're doing better than some areas of Ferraris, relatively. Interesting. You think cars like the Espada and Yarama will ever get any love, or are they going to always be outliers? Mm, Sure. As the others go up, they're going to... Pull them up with them, but they're not a mirror land. Not first on everybody's list. No, yeah, no, no. I, I hear you there. So let, let's uh, let's uh, hang a left and, and okay. leave, leave Italy and go up to Germany a little bit. And yeah, talk to us about some of the the Mercedes that you've loved and you've you've they've yeah. certainly got some pretty cars. Oh my God, Mercedes, the first and oldest company. They are the fa- you know the the first automobile was a Benz. Mercedes has. Interesting cars from pretty much every era, probably the best cars, some of the best cars from every era, and they're always leading the charge in the in the marketplace. The fun thing about Mercedes is there are they build build some of the most valuable cars ever created, but there's also some very affordable cars. And it's fun to see now that Mercedes from the 60s, 70s, 80s, the more pedestrian production sedans are becoming quite collectible. And people that own some really important and valuable, some of the finest car collections in the world, they have usually some kind of fun Mercedes sedan or, or something from the... 70s or 80s in their collection that they're attracted to. Absolutely true. And it's funny, David, I, on my drive up to this year's Monterey Car Week, I uh, followed an old pontoon fendered uh, sedan, and, you know, 65, whatever. And yeah. it was absolutely a hoot to watch this thing. There are three old guys my age in it, and they were probably having more fun than uh, anybody else on the road. Yep. And you look at a car like that and you say, wow, yeah, it's a Mercedes. It'll be doing exactly what it's doing now. 
50 years from now if they let us drive them. Yep, exactly. You can't kill it. If it's if it's maintained well, it'll run forever. Yeah. You know, that's an interesting car, and I guess always one of the blue chip uh, sort of standard bears, almost like the canary in the coal mine when it comes to uh, evaluating the health of a car market because mm-hmm. uh, 300 SLs are plentiful enough that there's always going to be a bit of a critical mass among collectors, always enough to keep interest generated. That is definitely the bellwether. I mean, where is the 300 SL market? Where is the 250 Ferrari market? Uh, where is where are Porsche 911s? But yeah, certainly 300 SLs, Goings and Roadsters are always, we always watch them carefully. We're going to take one more 15 second break, but don't leave us because when we come back, I'm going to ask David how you should develop your philosophy, your psychology, and your strategy when you're going to an auction and bidding (laughs) on a car. We'll be right back. Sometimes the exceptional is not the biggest budget. Sometimes the exceptional is someone's ability to actually take their soul and print it on the screen for a moment. I want to learn everything that there is to know about the filmmaking process. I think part of art is hearing from the artists who create it. And the number of different visions, the number of different qualifications that have to go into making any film is insurmountable. And hearing those stories can be just as exciting and insightful as the movies themselves. Certain movies or certain scores, certain actors, have shaped who I am as a person. I have such appreciation for the things that people produce and the work that goes into it. Whether it's the writer who came up with the story in general or how the filmmakers were able to take that from the page and put it onto screen and then from the actors themselves who were able to kind of bring that all to life. All of it is what I want to hear because it makes me love my favorite movies even more. I'm Scott Talal. If you love movies like I do, you're going to love Hollywood Unscripted. Wherever you get your podcasts. So we're back. And David, uh, when I walk into one of your auctions, I have to admit, um, I'm somewhat out of my league. I'm a little intimidated by what goes on. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little about what should be my strategy when I walk into an auction, if I see a couple of cars that I know I want to bid on? First off, we, you know, I can understand why it would be intimidating to people, but we don't want it to be. And we always encourage people to ask a lot of questions uh, at the time of the viewing. If you're, if you're showing up ahead of time of the auction, come see a specialist. Which you always should, right? You absolutely always should. Uh, if you can't get there, send a trusted friend or advisor to, to come look at the cars. But come ask us whatever questions you have and try the car on for size. You know, it may look beautiful and fantastic, but then you go to sit in it and the steering wheel's in your gut and you can't slide in you, or, you, you know, you can't reach the pedals. Or, 55 I mean, T-Bird, anybody? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you, I mean, you can't figure out how to, how to shift it. <laughs> right, right. Or the door, you know, or the windshield's in your eye, eye line. And there might be things that really don't work for you. Hopefully, you're going to use the car. You're going to drive it. Some people don't, but, you know, if, if, it's, if it's about driving it, you know, sit in it, get a feel for it, hear it run. Even if you're very seriously interested in it, we can organize a test drive in advance. But also, ask a lot of questions. Ask to see the files. And we have a whole archive section where we have every, every car's history file, put together from the beginning to uh, contemporary time 
So I encourage people to go through the archives, look at the file, look at the restoration receipts, look at the, you know, all the old photos and everything, and, and that's uh, super important. And then ask us about the car and, and what we can impart to you. Okay, so I've, yeah, I've, I've come there and I've, I've, I've found a car and, yep. and this is just yep. something that belongs in my collection. And, right. Okay, so I, I, I certainly don't want to let anybody know that I'm interested in the car, right? Right. I just, and I... And I uh, well, as it, as it proceeds, do, do I bid early? Do I... Well, no, sometimes people that act very territorial can, can kind of intimidate other people out of it. So mm-hmm. there's no one thing, but yeah, I mean, it, generally you're going to want to hold your cards close to your vest, but I've seen so other people... So you go to the guy sitting it, next to you and say, you can leave now because I'm buying this car. Well, I've right? seen, I've seen uh, big heavy hitters come in and go, you know, these are, these are guys that are known to be wealthy, they'll come in and they'll say, I'm buying that car. And other people go, well, I've just, I never bid because so-and-so said they were buying the car. And then turns out so-and-so doesn't really, you know, go that strong on the car. So you, you can over-intimidate people. But generally, if you're going to play your cards close to your vest, watch the room, watch the room carefully, see who's, who's bidding. You may know them, you may not know them. But I would go into the bidding process with a number in mind, and then the way I think is I usually have no, a, no, a rem- remembering you're the auctioneer. No, so. I know, I know. But I've been I've been in the audience, and I'm I'm ve- I'm a passionate collector, and I get I get caught up. Uh, uh, red ask, mist, man. You, you red know, mist. Yeah, you get you get the red mist definitely. So you have your budget. I'm not going to pay more than a hundred thousand dollars. But then you, you know, in the moment you can then reach Two point one million. Should I bid again? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, you're you're a little less uh, disciplined than myself, but yeah. No, I. You know, you can get uh, you you come up with that budget, but then be able to be a little flexible because you can you can also read the people in the room, and sometimes you tend to go plus one or two, and oftentimes you can read the the other bidders, and you can see that they're they're done or they're not. Of course, uh, and they're always the wild cards, that German on the phone and uh, yeah. the guy from England on the phone. Right. And, uh, they boy, really are can... on the phone, right, David? <laughs> <You> can... <laughs> yes, they really are they... on the phone. Sometimes, what some people don't realize is sometimes there are people in the room on that the are phone. on the phone. So there are bidders in the audience talking to our phone bidder on, on the telephone bank. No, I so did they're not watching. realize that. That's, yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's interesting. So uh, they like to be uh, somewhat trust, anonymous. They want, to be, they want to trust but verify and see what's going yeah. on in the room and read the room. Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, do, you want, do you want to be in, Robert, do you want to be in one of the VIP seats in the front or like <laughs> sit in the back of the room and watch the crowd? You want yeah. to be the guy with the janitorial cart, but you're actually the guy bidding. Bidding on the, in yeah. the room, yeah. We have all kinds of different bidders and whatnot. But I, you know, I would, I would go with that car, follow it, obviously, and then watch the other bidders. And you can generally detect weakness and see whether or not they're going to fall back or not. And then, you know, you have to do some soul searching. And I would ask yourself, how special and rare is that car? Does it, is it exactly what you want? Is it everything that you'd hoped for? If so, really stretch extra. If it's not, then go your, go, you know, go with what you budgeted and then drop out. But to the point of what you were saying before about, about you know, where to start and stop, one thing that I, that I don't think people um, take into account enough or ask themselves is, okay, if I'm going to pass on this car, how long, when is the next one mm-hmm. going to come up? Like, okay, they sure, they're plentiful, 
But when is the next one in that color going to come up that's going to be available in that condition? It may be very soon. It may be five years. Okay, so you're 60 years old and you're going, okay, well, I've got, you know, there's five summers that are five years gone that I'm going to have to wait. I'm a great believer in, look, life is short. If it's there and you can do it, go for it. There's nothing sadder than an old car collector with an empty garage space saying <laughs> yeah. coulda, woulda, shoulda. Coulda, yeah, no, exactly, yeah. exactly. And a lot of them have money and a lot of them have re regrets. And, uh, you know, I sit there and say, you know, you, you just should have. You, you should have. What, what is that, that memory? You could have taken that car to, you know, on the Millamilia with your son. I mean, what a, what a great memory that would be, you know? David is right. These cars are part of history, and that's why they matter. The opportunity to buy a particular car might come along once in a lifetime, so you don't want to let that slip by. But looking to the past is only part of the equation. Looking to the current state of car manufacturing, Bill had a great question for David. If your job today mm -hmm. was to go out and buy three brand new cars, is there anything out there that you think is new and will be a collector car in the future, or are we just done? <laughs> no, certainly we're not done. Definitely we're not done. Look, Ferrari always makes exciting products. And not that everything they make is wonderful, but I would buy certainly a, a Ferrari, a Porsche. What would be the third car? Huh. Would a Bugatti get in there anywhere? Or, or? I, I love classic Bugattis. The newer Bugattis, I'm not as much... Of, I, I, I don't feel they're as pure. It's a nice I mean, stereo. Yeah. <laughs> it's a great stereo. But I like the older Bugattis because I think of the new Bugattis as being VW Bugattis as, mm -hmm. as opposed to uh, yeah. purebred Bugattis. More of statements of the possible than necessarily projections of a continuous history in the same way that Porsche or Ferrari have really been, uh, or for that matter, even Lamborghini have been the continuous thread of authenticity and ownership. Right, right. It's a restart of a brand. It's just not, it's not the original derivation. So how about, they're, they're a, how about a new Aston? They're gorgeous. Yeah, I mean, that could be. Yeah, absolutely gorgeous. I mean, the styling on the new Astons is sensational. And they have a unique styling that is distinctly there. So You don't see yourself 30 years from now uh, standing atop a stage and, <laughs> and rolling a Tesla onto the stage for auction. I have great respect for what Tesla's done to the car industry. I think they're great cars and and is it really a car or well, is it kind yeah, of no, an exactly. iPad on wheels yeah no it, i think it is that and I, I i think that's interesting from a collectible point of view not I, so much not so much to me right. there's going to be some people that totally disagree but it's a, it's a cool way of getting from here to there but it's oh, a and different it's redefined things and i've driven them they're amazing they're incredible to drive what did you but drive I, here today I, david i drove a lexus <laughs> There you go. <laughs> With great air conditioning, yeah. wonderful traffic, wonderful Bluetooth, great room. and, and You talk about else. the smartest guy in the room. He's absolutely, uh, yeah, that's great. But, but they're, they're fantastic cars, actually. They're really good. Yeah. And it's a normally aspirated V8 Lexus. So, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. the turbos and whatnot. But, but back to the uh, Teslas, sound in a car is an important for me as a, as a car nut. But I, as an appliance... They don't have to have sound, but as a, as an enthusiast, they've got to have sound. And so the Teslas, to me, as an enthusiast, if I'm going to drive a car enthusiastically, I don't like 
Sure. Well, it's kind of has some they noise. They could have piped it in through the stereo. Yeah, right? not the same. Not the, not same. the same. What's the not best the sounding car? Uh, what engine do you like more than any other? Uh, well, or does I mean, it depend on the day? It depends on the day. I mean, there, there's nothing like a, a V12 Ferrari is phenomenal. They're incredible. Well, once you get it up above seven, yeah, <laughs> yeah, they really you sound like the really screaming. I like the screaming ones. Yeah, uh, one of the best sounding cars of all times is a 300 SLR Mercedes, but we don't get to hear those a lot. There are many cars that sound great. You know, I, I love the sound that that a great 911 makes, but uh, noise is a real big part of it for me. I mean, it, a car that sounds good, you don't even have to be driving it that fast, but if it's making the right noises. It's part of the fun of driving a car, uh, so or riding in a car. You know, certainly. I was just going to ask David. You know, when all said and done, and uh, you know, we uh, have a couple of drinks up at that Gooding and Company Bitters Bar, and we're starting to uh, imagine things that aren't real. When the genie pops out of the bottle and offers you any three cars, mm-hmm. you know, excluding the real rarities like uh, maybe a Bugatti for Type 41 or a 300 SLR, but three cars that are absolutely, maybe, possibly a reality. Okay. Which three do you want? Definitely the Mercer Raceabout, which is near and dear to my heart. I love those cars in general and the one that we have in our family. That would be the first one. Second one would be, it's funny because I hadn't really thought about this, but it comes pretty clearly right to my mind. The second one would be an 8C Alpha from the 1930s, a, probably a 2.3 Touring Spider or Zagato. Sound being a big part of it, the mm-hmm. roar they make is like nothing else. The third car would be a 250 Ferrari, but I'd be happy with any forms of a 250. Mm-hmm. At the very top end, a GTO or a TR, which is a huge number, but it could be, you know, any any great... 250 Ferrari is would you know they, that does it. You kind of covered the bases. Yeah, yeah. You covered the bases. Yeah. Well, so. Robert, David, <laughs> thank you both for coming into Malibu today on Robert Ross's Cars That Matter. I can't think of anything more fun than to pick your brain, the finest auctioneer on the planet. Can't wait to see your next show. Good luck with acquiring the cars that truly matter. Thank Thank you for coming in and can't wait to see you again. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. Thank you, David Gooding from Gooding & Company for joining us on Cars That Matter. We'll see you next time to continue talking about the passions that drive us and the passions we drive. This episode of Cars That Matter was hosted by Robert Ross and Bill Curtis. Produced by Chris Porter. Sound engineering by Michael Kennedy. Theme song by Celeste and Eric Dick. Recorded at Kirkco's Malibu Podcast Studios. Additional music and sound by Chris Porter. Our guest today was David Gooding. Tune in to Cars That Matter wherever you rev up your podcasts. I'm Robert Ross. Thanks for listening. Kurt Co. Media. Media for your mind.